Hi everyone, this is Josh from Tabletop Journeys. I wanted to take a couple of seconds before this recording to let you know a couple of things uh, about this particular recording, in fact. So we're going to take a couple of weeks off of our coverage from Tasha's Cauldron of Everything to push out an episode that Lee Wanika and I recorded uh, very early in our thought process on uh, putting this podcast together. So as a result, I think you'll hear that the audio quality in this particular episode is not uh, quite even up to the standard of where we are now. Uh, so I'm going to ask uh, a little bit of indulgence from you all uh, on that, because the conversation that we're having is really, really great. We're getting really deep into uh, backgrounds from both a mechanic and from a narrative point of view uh, throughout various tabletop games, and the conversation is really fantastic. It's two episodes worth of material, so you're going to hear it this week and next week. The other thing I want to let you guys know is that uh, there is going to be a special episode that comes out where Liwanika and I talk a lot about PTSD in role-playing games. Um, that's going to be one of our side quest episodes that comes out on Wednesday. Uh, but I also did want to give you a heads up that there is uh, quite a bit of discussion about PTSD in this episode also. I just wanted to give you a heads up so that it didn't surprise anybody that might be particularly sensitive to that. Anyway, we hope you enjoy. This is the first of our two-part episode on backgrounds, and we're going to get back to our coverage of Tasha's afterwards. Thank you. Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventure. On today's show, we're going to be discussing the concept of character backgrounds. And we're going to be talking a lot about the difference between a character's background as narrative and the actual background mechanics that exist through multiple games. We're going to talk about how they feed each other and how the interaction between a character sheet and a character's background happens. And a great deal of that comes down to how you roleplay your character and how does that background, mechanically or narratively, how does that inform the character? And that always begs the question, what came first, the character or the background? You know, chickens and eggs. Josh, what do you think about that? So for me, characters begin with their background. I want to know who they are, where they came from, what their origin story is. Um, and that's really going to inform a lot of the choices that I make, uh, even down to particular characters' class, different attribute scores that are going to come up, and, and everything like that. You know, if I, if I am a character that was raised in a highly wooded environment uh, and had to, uh, you know, had kind of like a rough and tumble uh upbringing, you know, I'm going to uh, prioritize things like dexterity and things like constitution and uh, intelligence over wisdom and stuff like that. I'm much the same way. I think a lot about where a character comes from, how they grew up, um, how that informs the characters. Any role-playing game, whether it be D&D 5e or Cyberpunk or Vampire of the Masquerade, I think about how they grew up in their background, you know, what a person goes through as a youngster, what they go through, ooh, listen to me sound old, uh, as, a, as a child, as, as a young adult, as a teen, uh, their college years or what the equivalent of their college years would be, 
has a lot to do about how you speak, why you speak, when you speak, and to whom you speak. I look to background to give me that information so I can play a much better character. And I think that there are certainly situations, um, and we're going to talk about pre-generated characters a little bit later in the episode, but there are certainly situations where you're handed a character sheet and part of building the background is going through the various attributes that that particular character has and figuring out where they came from. You know, when you look at the uh, at the fifth edition, you know, they have all those background boxes up on the character sheet and they kind of, you know, they describe what are your character's motivations as they move through this world. And those are absolutely right fodder for uh for building a, a comprehensive uh, character background absolutely and it's interesting uh when you're looking especially at 5e which is the fifth edition of a fantastic game obviously one i've been playing for most of my life but it is the fifth edition so this is not their first go round with backgrounds they've done this before and they've done it in mul multiple different ways none quite as mechanical as this but they've always been there. Um, yeah, absolutely. Second edition had kits, which were like the modern version of the subclass. Yep. Uh, but those kits, when they were in their uh, book, their version, there's a lot more flavor to them. And that flavor text was really filling in that background information. So it wasn't just a background mechanical. It was a background narrative, your backstory, if you will. Right, as opposed to the prestige classes, which were very much a background mechanical thing. They had less narrative. They had some narrative on them, especially as you got some of the exotic prestige classes. But your traditional prestige classes, the ones that were kind of in your core books, were basically a mechanical device, not a narrative device. Exactly. And for those who are not, haven't been gaming quite as long as uh, Josh and I, prestige yeah. classes were a factor of 3.5, a version that Josh and I played for many, many years in several campaigns. Uh, where we uh, re really, I wouldn't say we came up with that version. I, I mean, I largely played second edition before and, and first first edition and second edition well before 3.5, but I would say I really came into a true and honest love of the game yeah. uh, with 3.5. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I played a lot of D&D &D and AD&D uh, when I was younger. I was a super math geeky kid, so the math of the Thaco system and everything like that, uh, it all made sense and it was interesting. But 3.5 was really where my style went from a role-playing, R-O-L-L, to a role-playing, R-O-L-E, Type, type game. I definitely started doing more character type things than uh, just kind of looking at the sheet and saying, oh, well, you know, my guy has an 18 double lot strength, and so I can do these things. Yeah, I, I can definitely say that when I started playing 3-5 as a player, um, less so as a DM, but as a player, 3-5 was where being a rogue with an acrobatic prestige kit became something that I strove for. And I worked on all the things to get there because it allowed me to do things and I would do them in voice. It was, you know, with my really uh, shameful British accent. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about how various systems handle the background from a mechanical point of view and kind of how that feeds the characters that exist in that world. So I'm gonna take it back to 3.5, as I said earlier, Earlier editions had some mechanism-ish for this, but none of them were really quantified or identified in quite the way we're talking about it today. Definitely 3.5 leapt into this idea of background backstory as being an important element right off the rip. 
So back when it was still 3.0, not 3.5, they had uh, a book known as the Hero Builder's Guide. While some people kind of look at it as the start of power creep or the start of unnecessary padding, extra books that weren't necessary or core to the game, I flat disagree. This was one of my favorite 3.0 books, and I'm a collector, so I have nearly all of them for the first several years of the edition, but I found this book to be very instrumental to me as a player, and as a DM, it was fantastic. By the way, it's still available today, though out of physical print on DM's Guild. Go there, pick it, pick that up. It's a digital, watermark digital PDF, and it's there for you. It has all kinds of great information on the fantasy races and names. You know, when you're talking about backstory, let's start where a character starts. What's his name? Historically, the name of a person is very important. You know, even getting started with this podcast, Josh and I had a discussion of, are we going to go by nicknames? Are we going to go by initials? Are we going to, you know, make up names? All these things. Uh, my decision was to use my name, my middle name. Uh, it's frequently what I, what I go by in day-to-day -day life. It's what Josh has called me for years. It's what lots of people call me. So, you know, here I am as Lee Wanika before you because the power of a name is important. Very similar to mechanics that exist in the modern game or are around in the modern game, they had huge lists of names by race, by fantasy race, I should say, with guidance as far as surnames, female names, male names. Uh, so that was a major part of the Hero Builder's Guide. One of the things that I started doing, I would name characters with at least one name from this list of expected names. Not, not necessarily all of them, usually just one. I always wanted to have my own spin on things. So my own first name, a fantasy race last name, or a fantasy race first name, my own spin on the last name, something like that. But then we got into the backstory itself, and that's where the personal histories really came into play. And there were tables, and tables upon tables upon tables, and page after page. They went into things like the home, where you grew up. Was it by terrain? Was it by fantasy race? The society? You know, did you grow up on a farm? Did you grow up in a city? Did you grow up in a dwarven city, a human city, a halfling town? All those types of things. They go into family, tables for elements about economics, a religious standing. How, you know, how does your family feel about religion? What are their goals? Education. They really broke that into two areas education, instruction, and formal education. The idea being is what were you taught and what were you later taught? And then it goes into life events and finally relationships. I'm actually going to flip that. I'm going to talk about relationships first. Relationships, your families. There's a table for how many siblings you have, what types of things your parents do. Are your parents still alive? Because remember, though everybody has played the edgelord who, who's an orphan, there are still other options out there. And this had, even had tables for how you were orphaned. So you gotta you can't just be you're an orphan. It's gotta be the, the dragon lord from the high mountain on high came down and wiped out the village, but only your parents. The whole village is there. They cried with you at the funeral, but you're still an orphan. <laughs> but this talks about your grandparents and your extended family as a whole. Are you is your cousin a duke? Is your cousin a, a dung farmer? <laughs> More importantly, is your cousin an organic dung farmer? <laughs> Those no, of you who organic are horse dung. That, so I, I'm thinking that's going to be a recurring bit. We, we now have a recurring bit about horse dung. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that anybody that's playing in my game right now is going to see 
they're going to see a lot of similarities in those questions to the questions that I asked them after they submitted their initial background. Because for all the players in my game, my first question to them was, give me the background on your character. And then once they gave me that background, then it was, okay, now we're going to play 20 questions. And I need you to go ahead and write out your answer to these 20 questions. It was things like, how many siblings do you have? How well do you get along with your siblings? Who are your parents? How, how well do you get along with your parents? You know, who was your best friend when you were younger who was your biggest enemy when you were younger all those sorts of things because you know as a as a storyteller i want all that material for fodder so that you know when i kill your parents you've thought about who they are you know not just that i can you know i just go ahead and do that that's all all really super important the fictional parents oh yeah 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 totally yeah yeah yeah. only fictional parents exactly right yeah you know your point about names is was really well taken too uh not to go back a little too far here but like one of my characters his you know he's a human character his last name is tannerson and the reason why his last name is tanner is because his father's a tanner like that's you know that's exactly where his name came from and he he found his own first name slapped his last name on it and boom then he had then he, he already had background built into his very identity as a character character um it's why um a site like fantasynamegenerators.com is so powerful because they've got hundreds of generators for all sorts of things you know when when my characters basically stumbled upon an exotic animal market um and i had to create this weird strange animal that nobody had ever seen before i needed a name for it and that was that's exactly where i went um and so like sites like that are super important to to spark the creative flow Sparking the creative flow is what's important to this discussion. This was a book that was made at a time where people took books to be canon. So when a book like this came out, a lot of people in the community said, well, now I can't make a character unless I do all these things. I have to now make selections or roll on every single one of these tables. I don't know the page count. I have it, I have it digitally actually on my computer behind the screen of the window I'm looking at right now, I'm not going to count that for you. It's not, that's not valuable to this discussion. Other than to say, it's a lot of pages. But people at that time, 3.5, if it was in a book, you had to do it. That was kind of the going thought. I think the hobby has evolved in the interim years to the point where people are much more along the lines of, use what works for your game. If you're a DM and you're listening to this, use the elements of this that work for your game and by all means, especially work for your players. If you're a player, use this for yourself and ask the DM if he wants it. If you have a DM who doesn't, let it fuel your creativity. Let it be yours and you're good to go. Then it was beneficial. If your DM wants it, and you've done this on your own, I'm telling you, you're going to have a rewarding experience. DMs out there, please use this stuff. Yeah. Really, really good. Later in this episode, I think Josh and I are both going to tell some stories about how we've had great success with backgrounds being important as DMs. Yeah. Bringing them back to the characters and seeing the rewards of that effort. Absolutely, right. 
running a homebrew world with my with locations of my own my own design and everything like that the important part about getting a background from a character was you know if you are an elf you can be from one of these seven cities here's the description of those seven cities and now pick one and write me a background you know that kind of thing in this particular case the background was was very collaborative because you know these players are playing in a world that they knew nothing about i was the the only person that knew anything about this world was me and so so I had to go ahead and get that information out. But in terms of doing the background collaboratively, it not only gave them what they needed to go ahead and build their own background, but it also helped get the lore of this realm out. You know, not everybody is going to know the inner politics of the Elven Kingdom, but the elf that lived there absolutely gets it on a level that everybody else doesn't. And along those lines, I think uh, I should mention, and we're definitely going to do episodes that touch on these topics. We're definitely going to do an episode on homebrewing your own campaign world. Yeah. Both Josh and I are a story. <laughs> at least one. We have at least. Both Josh and I homebrew a campaign. Uh, I actually have two ongoing campaigns in the same world right now that are of our own creation. I've been working on mine for just under two years now. I've done a number of one-shots, and I have, like I said, I have two ongoing campaigns. Josh just started his a uh, couple uh, a month ago. So session two is next week. Yeah, I play in my, camp- my campaign runs uh, every other week for each of those games, and I do one-shots about every three to four months. Yeah. So... Uh, I have a little bit more time in my homebrew world. Josh is a little less on this particular homebrew world, but we are both using backgrounds as a mechanism to build this homebrew world. So in my game, I have asked people to decide where they're from or pick backgrounds and then and pick places where they've been or where they go during downtime even. And the idea being, I then give them the information about that area there. Later on in this wide open sandboxy homebrew world, if the player characters want to go to an area and it happens to be an area that one of the characters comes from, I now have a vehicle, an avenue, a window to the party that lets me give them the information. So it's like, hey, you know this place because of this. Not everything in this place is new to everyone. This character knows how it goes here. And background is that avenue. The last thing that I wanted to talk about in 3.5 is the life events. Basically, they have a series of things, early childhood events, youth events, and pivotal event. And these are basically a table of things, important things that happen during these three different time periods. And you can select these options and use that as a launching point for backstory or even for current story. Like you go back to your hometown and the people there remember that early childhood event, or you may have gained an enemy during that pivotal event or something like that. Josh, we both, we met each other playing Mind's Eye Theater, uh, Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, You want to let us in on how uh, the background system works there? Yeah, absolutely. So the coolest thing that I found about the Mind's Eye Theater background system, like all other sort of live action role playing systems that are not super rules heavy, you have to come up with a lot of it on your own. At least how Mind's Eye Theater runs it is through its nature and demeanor system. And the whole 
concept of the nature and demeanor system is what's sort of your motivating factor that defines who you are as a character, and then what is the defining system that puts out who you are as a character uh, to the outside world. And kind of how those two things interact with one another is going to decide how you go ahead and play that character, right? So if you are um, externally or if your demeanor to other people um, is that you're a schemer, but if internally you are a planner, um, you know, those are those sound very similar, but you've got to think that, you know, outwardly people understand that you are trying to be a cog in the machine and that you're trying to manipulate things. But with the planner narrative, what they don't realize is that it comes from sort of a, a type A personality where you're trying to organize everything way ahead of time and you are trying to make sure that you have all of your ducks in a row. And so it really kind of, in, that sort of defines how your how your your everyday game session is going to go when you start talking about how your nature and demeanor are. So it's, it's less of a, here are the origins of my character and it's more of a guiding principle to how you're going to play the character in a given game session. It was because of the soft versus hard roll-on-the-table nature of uh, Mind's Eye Theater and uh, their background system, their nature demeanor system, that Josh and I uh, really connected and we met. I played a character who, when thinking about his backstory and his nature and demeanor, I actually picked on a few narratives. One of them is not the best depiction of law enforcement, but <laughs> it was, unfortunately... Um, something that Josh and I had some understanding of the reality of coming from growing up in the south shore of the of greater Boston area in the 80s. Law enforcement, while there's a lot of great professionals in that in it, not all of them were necessarily on the up and up if you're from the south shore. I don't feel that that's a terrible thing to talk about. It was very far in the past, and it is definitely something that has been celebrated in film and on TV and in media. Growing up in the Whitey Bulger 80s in Southie, near Southie, we know there's some cops that were not great folks. When making this character, for me, I chose to lean into that because it made it easier. I was coming into a game very late in the, in the game's run. I think it was the last two events of their second to final season. And it was known that it was the second to final season. So I wasn't making a brand new character that was going to be a mover and shaker. I was just making a guy to kind of get into the game and play and meet new people. So I leaned into that nature and that shady cop thing. I just leaned into the backstory. I, I just played a cop from Boston and uh, Southie to be specific. And I just talked about actual streets in Southie. I talked about actual places in Southie. Uh, it so happened that Josh, who I did not know at the time, is from South, the South Shore. And so when he heard me talking about these things, he's like, this, this cat knows what he's talking about. <laughs> I don't think I've said it since, but whatever. Yeah, but at least I can name some streets. So it, it was one of those things. So background became a vehicle to explaining the characters, a shorthead for a character, and it allowed me to keep the conversation going. And that's really what's important. How can Absolutely. You keep the conversation going? Right. So because so much of, of the, the Mind's Eye Theater in particular is based on the management of influences. And if you're not familiar with the game system, influences are basically different game systems run them different ways. But think about a, a mover and shaker 
in your game world who is friends with somebody at the news media, who is uh, friends with a venture capitalist, who is friends with a socialite, who has contacts kind of among the homeless population on the street. You know, all those things are influences and they are uh, more than any other um, money or anything like that, they are the commodity that make the game system run. Uh, because if I have an influence uh, on the street, then I can get things that exist in sort of that paradigm, which are very different from uh, somebody who has a, a high society uh, influence who can get things from sort of that paradigm. But inf- the, the influence makeup of a character and what influences they have or don't have are absolutely tied to the background of that character you know that uh that street cop from southie has street influence he has police influence um he has underworld influence because we know it happens um you know and you know and again uh, we're we're definitely playing a, a character of that sort of um that sort of archetype that cop doesn't actually exist but we're emphasizing features of that of that archetype that make the gameplay more fun. Um, and so when your cop from Southie ghoul runs into my high finance ghoul, who is, you know, also in Boston, but is donating to the children's hospitals and is, you know, is on the board promoting, you know, the, the major and minor league sporting events and is out there in the media and has been given, has given interviews on the television and, you know, is, friends with all these other financial up and ups you know we have a different world of influence and they're based in who we are as characters i mean that is that character's background the way i would i talk about when the characters that we played in that game is if you watch uh the movie the departed versus watching a documentary on whitey balter yep it's the same story one is clearly fictional one is a I don't want to say send up. I don't think what they were doing. It was more like a deconstruction. So our version of the of at least my character uh, Zachary Tajij, was, Detective Zachary Tajij, was a deconstruction of those archetypal negative characters in this fictional vampire world. Now, uh, but it was definitely designed by design that the difference between watching a documentary on. Um, Various uh, Wall Street issues or issues. Yeah, I was going to say it's the Uh, difference between watching The Wolf of Wall Street and watching The Big Short. You know, you've got two movies that are dealing with the same world, but are dealing with it entirely different ways, and uh, dealing with it from one's kind of going from the top down and one's going from the bottom up. And so that perception is definitely driving how the characters interact with it, and that's really that's the vehicle that background serves is it can have mechanical benefits or detriments to your character and certain you know and we're talking about mind's eye theater a little bit here but the mechanical differences are fed by background but that's not its primary purpose its primary purpose is to define how does your character move through the world that it finds itself in that's a great segue to move into a different game system one that i have played since late 80s, which is the Palladium system. I'm going to specifically speak about Robotech and Rifts here, or basically the Rift system and 
the Robotech game that is now out of print. It's now defunct, but specifically it's Robotech Shadow Chronicles. And the reason why I say that we lead into this well is because now we're getting into where a background has mechanical benefits. Most of the Palladian systems work in a similar fashion. They all have a lot of the same elements I'm about to discuss. However, the Robotech game has some very special elements that are immediately and uh, noticeable because they have mechanical benefits to your character and your character sheet. Like many other games, it has tables for the backgrounds. They can be selected. They can be chosen by a DM. They can even be rolled for randomly. But these background, these background elements are number of siblings, birth order, place of birth, which is different from some of the others, you're, whether you're the firstborn, secondborn, whatever, uh, whether there's twins. Your family ties, like how close are you to your family? Uh, how does that relationship work? The Robotech uh, Shadow Chronicle system also has something that I think is amazing and something that in kind of studying up for and planning for this, this particular episode, it reminded me that I need to start looking at something like this also, which is it has a table for your relationship or more accurately, your character's relationship to your teammates. So there's actually a background note that says how long you, how well you get along with your players. For any of our storytellers, DMs, and GMs out there that have issues with party cohesion, they need to absolutely think about something like this. If it's not something that they do with their game in the past, or they haven't done in the past, think about using this now. Get a hold of one of these uh, one of these books. It, the book is out of print, so it's going to be hard to get hold of, or it may in fact be uh, expensive. But the Robotech Shadow Chronicles book. But it, it's important to note that. Knowing how your PC gets along with teammates is a part of the character that you need to have there. That's going to help you get through those character, those in-game character debates as to how to proceed. It's going to stop the in-party fighting potentially, or it may generate it depending on what you're going. With. You know, so that it's an important thing to have in there. I was listening to a podcast today where they were talking about the game system Masks. Uh, Masks is a superhero build on top of the Powered by Apocalypse game system. It, literally just today, so I haven't had the chance to go ahead and look up and see whether this is something specific to Masks or if this is a Powered by the Apocalypse concept, but they have a mechanic that is called your Team Pool that comes into play whenever your team of superheroes is moving as a unit against something, right? And so it starts at a certain number. It starts at like two or something like that. And then there are various things that can add or detract from it. So for example, if the if everybody in the party agrees who the leader of the party is at that moment in time, you gain one into your team pool. If everybody in the party trusts everybody in the party at that time, you gain one into your team pool. And the team pool is a mechanic that only kind of exists for that time and then goes away. And the way that you can, uh, the way that the team pool comes into effect is that I roll and I get a nine uh, and your character thinks that they can help my character somehow, then I can take one from the team pool to bump my nine up to a ten. And so it builds in a mechanic to that team relationship. And, and then the team pool goes down by one. So if the team pool's at three and your character helps my character, then the team pool goes down to two. And so 
what I found listening through the playthrough is that it takes a little bit of out-of-game adjudication before like a big team combat begins, but that that mechanic goes to exactly what you're talking about there, about how our relationship as a team to each other now is a physical component to that combat. When we talk about in greater detail about our current campaigns and how we've made those up, there's things that I did specifically relating to backgrounds that lead to that. So in my current campaign, one of them, the first of them, uh, the one that I've been running the longest, I specifically had every one of the player characters grew up together. Yeah. Who allowed diversification They were and freedom of choice for the players and player character agency, they grew up in an orphanage. So basically everybody was an orphan dead lord. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and one of them actually didn't start from that from the start point. But uh, everybody grew up together. And the conceit of the game was, well, before we even put pencil to paper was, every one of you is running a character who grew up together in the orphanage. The people who ran the orphanage, your parents, if you will, are loving, doting parents that you all love and follow. They are good people, and they have raised good people. With And, and while there are a few divergent uh, alignments, when it comes to family, every one of these characters is solid. If anybody's seen the movie Four Brothers, also a South Boston thing, I think we're going <laughs> It is, that was my concept. I actually was watching that movie for like the 18th time at the time I was initially writing the campaign. That's why you understand my family so much. Yeah, but it, the, the idea was these very diverse individuals had one thing in common, where they grew up. And that was a solid lot. It wasn't glue that held them together. They started together. They were one. While they can go out and do different things, when they're together, they are back to how they always were. Even if they have arguments amongst each other, brothers argue very differently than a person you met or a person you're going to meet, even if you're friends. For many folks, that's very different than how you would argue with your brother or your sister or whomever. So that was a concept I did, and it was because, again, going back to background, I wanted that to inform the characters, and I wanted that to be the reason why characters stuck together, backed each other up. Many, many episodes, we'll get into all the different ways that plays out, but that's very important. Now, I remember when we were kind of prepping for this episode, you were saying that there was a great question, and I think I remember something about truth, but you were going to tell me about a rule system that had a one-off that you thought was amazing. Yeah, absolutely. So this is, again, this is a, uh, a rule that I have adapted into uh, my own homebrew system, and it is it's a rule that I've taken from a game system called the 13th Age. The background for characters in 13th Age is more that there are paragons of certain aspects that are real-world entities. Like, there is a person that actually embodies the ultimate fighter in the world, right? And they are a known commodity and sort of like... sort of like a mechanic where, you know, something can become a god if there's enough people that follow it, right? It sort of becomes, it, it sort of takes on that sort of aspect to it. And so that's that's kind of how the mechanics of the world work. But every person that, or every character that lives within that world has one unique fact that 
sets them apart from every other person that lives in that world. Nobody else in the world has that same thing. Um, and so that was one thing that I, I really liked. And I, I have built that into, uh, into the game that I'm running now. And so all of the players during their character creation process had to come up with what they wanted that one thing to be. Um, and it definitely took some, uh, some storyteller intervention where it's like, it has to be tweaked a little bit, right? They can't come up with anything totally, uh, totally out of the ordinary, but it becomes a way for both their characters to identify into the world. And so they've got, they have one thing that is totally unique about them, but it also gives me a way as, as a storyteller to give something about everybody that they meet a sense of who they are. So for example, like they met like this Uber soldier type and his unique truth or his unique fact was that his skin looked like it was totally made of bronze. Um, it wasn't that he was, you know, like he wasn't necessarily a person of color necessarily. And he wasn't like, uh, like a metal golem or anything like that. So his skin wasn't actually bronze, but his skin had that sort of bronzy color to it and nobody had ever seen it before and he's the only one that they could think of and in the game world there's a reason why he has that sort of uh, appearance as far as the players at the table they some of their unique truths are known that ability to define their character and the unique slice that their character owns in the world is a sense of agency that is really super important to building better role play. I so like that idea as a whole. It's something that as I, the next time I start a campaign, that's going to be a key element of the campaign is, is going to be that. Uh, I also really like the way you do identify. We've talked about that just between the two of us before. Thank you for listening. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and get all the updates that happen beyond the podcast. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at ttjourneys or send us an email at ttjourneys at gmail.com. Lastly, if you're listening to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts, we'd love you to leave a review, like, and subscribe. All the feedback we receive goes to making the show better, and we want to hear what you would like us to cover going forward. Thank you again for listening. And in the words of a fellow traveler along our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.